This morning we're going to be drawing from Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, verse 7, and then verses 11 and 12. These are the words of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Then moving to verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Moving to verses 11 and 12. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now you would open your word by your spirit to give us understanding, Lord, of your ways, and particularly in the children that you give us, how you see them, how you treat them, how you minister them, and what you want us to do, Lord, with the children you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at uh, the last couple of weeks in Genesis 17. We've been looking specifically last Sunday at God's commands regarding circumcision and newborn boys, as we just read. And these kind of verses tend to raise questions in our minds about our own children that God's given us, and particularly about the new covenant sign of baptism. That's where our thoughts tend to run. And so we want to turn into that. We want to talk about that. We want to uh, make some, uh, draw some conclusions and, and see some applications uh, based on how God views and works with our children and, and the new covenant sign of baptism. Now, the practice of our church and of our entire denomination is to honor the conviction of the parents when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have families who are convicted that of, of what you would call pedo-baptism. In other words, you, you baptize the baby born to believing mother and father uh, and pedo-communion, uh, the same. Uh, and we have those who have the conviction of what you would call credo-baptism, baptism only on profession of faith, and the Lord's Supper would follow the same way. And so as elders, we follow the convictions of the parents. We've baptized children both ways um, based on that conviction. And that will continue to be our practice going forward into the future. Now, the elders in our church, um, none of us started off as pedo-baptists. We all started out in churches uh, that believed in baptism only on profession of, of faith and But over time, we each came to the conviction that God wants us to baptize children as infants. But we have a lot of families that are at different places in this, people who are working through these issues. Um, I'm just pointing this out so that you understand our elders. We understand that journey. We understand the confusion that there can be. I mean, you you have to wonder when you get a topic that you can pull up every single verse in in the Bible uh, that has to do with baptism, and you can look, you put all those verses together, you can read all of those verses, and yet the people who are on either side of that issue 
find what they're looking for to their own satisfaction and wonder how the other people can't see it, you know. And so whenever you have that happen based on a particular doctrine in Scripture, that's a telltale sign that the debate, the, the, the difference in understanding is not being driven by those specific verses themselves. What makes the difference is what we're bringing to those verses. In other words, what's, what's our big picture understanding of what God is doing? And in this case, what is God's view of our children? What's his view of our children? And how does he treat them? How does he minister to them? And therefore, how does he want us to see them? How does he want us to minister to them? Those are really the critical questions. So today's sermon is really, wherever you are on this, this sermon is meant to help you search the scriptures in a Berean script, uh, uh, spirit uh, prayerfully. And so, and also to hopefully, you know, put you at ease about the subject so you can relax here because nobody's going to force you one way or the other. We just work together to try to search out what the scriptures uh, say. So let's take up this question, how does God view our children? How does he treat them? Well, I want us to turn first to Ezekiel chapter 16. Now, this is an interesting passage because I've not seen it show up in a single book or article or tape on the question of baptism. But this happens to have been a passage that was played a key role in my understanding of it. Because this verse does speak very directly to how God sees our children. The setting here is that, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is Ezekiel, so heading into the Babylonian captivity. God is explaining in Ezekiel 16 why the Babylonian captivity is coming. The unfaithfulness of his people, the way the Israelites moved into idolatry. And this is one of the worst things that they ever did. A number of Israelites not only practiced idolatries, they took uh, baby boys and girls and offered them in the fire to idols. The, the uh, practice, as I have read uh, from archaeologists, is that they would have an idol made out of some kind of metal uh, in a sitting position, you put the baby in the lap of the idol and then you just burn it alive. That's what they would do. And so that's what some of the Israelites were doing. And that's what God is rebuking them for in these two verses, Ezekiel 16, 20 and 21. God says, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Then in verse 21, he says, you slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Now, what really got me um, as I was reading my Bible and happened across this passage is that God says, you took my children. You took my children whom you bore to me. In other words, my children from birth, not from circumcision, my children already. You took my children and you offered them up. And that was a game changer for me personally that God, they're God's kids first. They're not ours first and then we go dedicate them to God. They belong to God from the get-go. 
In fact, Psalm 139 says that God covers them in the womb. He forms their inward parts. That's what uh, David says in verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's wombs. And therefore, God, even when he calls them your children, he says, your children whom you bore to me. In other words, from birth, they are God's. So the picture we get here is God's creating these kids. He is weaving them in the wombs of the believing moms. And they belong to God first. And so God is entrusting them. They belong to him first. He entrusts them to us. That's the way it happens. Now, this squares with what I have found to be the instinct of every single Christian parent I have ever met from any background, doesn't matter what church, what denomination, what tradition. Now, I have heard of some Christian uh, parents and churches who have a a contrary uh, belief, but I haven't actually met any of them, and I don't think there's very many. Every Christian parent I've ever met, when they have a newborn, they instinctively believe that God has given them that child. This is not some child they got themselves or happened upon themselves, and now they're going to say, look, Lord, something new. They know God has given us this child. And they, and, and they sense and know that God has entrusted this child to them. For them to raise up, to raise up this child, to believe God's word, to love God, to obey Him, and to, and to walk with Him. And that's the way they're going to bring their child up. And so, from the earliest age, they're going to teach that child to pray. Some Christian parents I know start this while the child's in the womb. You know, they, they, they pray, so they say, you know, moms read these books, you know, about, they can hear, they can hear, they can hear in the womb, the child can hear. So anyway, some start while the child's in the womb, but once come out, as soon as they can talk, they teach the child to pray to God. They teach the child to obey God's word. They teach the child to confess their sins regularly. Basically, they teach the child to live as a Christian. In a simple way, in a little child way, they teach the child to live daily as a Christian. And they sense that all of this, this whole package is very important. It's very, very important. It's a solemn duty. It's a great privilege. And therefore, this whole thing ought to be acknowledged in some kind of formal, public way. And so if they don't believe in infant baptism, they will dedicate the child. Because they think this is really important. This needs to be acknowledged in some way. Now, I want to submit to you that all those instincts are exactly right. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. That Those are biblically correct. But between that, on our way to baptism, we get confused. We get confused because of a couple of assumptions we make about baptism. The first assumption we make is that baptism is a person's testimony, their personal testimony about their personal faith and their personal decision to follow Christ. That's the first assumption we make, which is why a lot of these parents dedicate the child 
but don't baptize them because the world of baptism is about this child's personal testimony of their personal faith and their personal decision for Christ. That will come later on. The other assumption we make is the, uh, about the connection between baptism and circumcision because we know that circumcision in the Old Testament was given to boys at the days uh, of eight, eight days old. We know that, but we assume that baptism and circumcision, Old Covenant and New Covenant, are really dealing with two completely different things. There is a strong assumption in the modern evangelical church that, that God basically has two peoples in history. God has a physical people, uh, the nation of Israel, uh, to whom God makes physical promises about descendants and about a physical land, the land of Canaan. And that, and that people has a physical destiny and circumcision is representing all those physical things for that physical people. And so, of course, you can give the covenant sign uh, of that kind of people based on those kind of promises to a baby at eight days because the baby is physically here and they're physically born and this is a physical people with physical promises and a physical destiny. The church, on the other hand, is seen as a completely different people of God, a spiritual people with a spiritual destiny based on spiritual promises, and therefore, baptism is disconnected from circumcision. Those are the two assumptions that really are very, very common in the modern evangelical church. The thing is, as we've already seen in our study of Genesis, is that Not only would the Bible not let us get away with those assumptions, the New Testament will not let us get away with those assumptions. Look at Romans chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. So the New Testament tells us that whatever else may be have been involved in God's promises in the Old Testament and what circumcision stood for, at its heart, circumcision was a sign and a seal of righteousness by faith. That sounds evangelical to me. Righteousness by faith. That sounds evangelical to me. That he might be the father of all who believe. He's our father in the faith. He didn't have some different faith. Faith on different promises. He's our father in the faith. In fact, it's, it's Abraham that's always referred to by Paul and others in the New Testament when they're trying to show that salvation is by faith alone. You go back to Genesis 15, 6 where it says, And Abraham believed God... And it was accounted to him for righteousness. That verse is quoted over and over and over in the New Testament. Well, that's what's being argued here in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. So, Abram gets circumcision, seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. Okay? So, notice the order here. 
when Abram is accounted righteous by faith, he's uncircumcised. He gets circumcised later, not just a little bit later, like 14 years later. So it's very clear. So today, if we were going to use our terminology, we would say Abraham received believer's circumcision. Right? Believer's circumcision. And yet, God turned right around and said, give it to every one of these male children at eight days. So we have to think about that. Look as we read on. Verse 12. So he's the father of all who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while he's still uncircumcised. So Abraham is the father of a bunch of people who are circumcised and who are uncircumcised. But what is the common factor to all those people? Faith. If you don't, it doesn't matter if you have the blood of Abraham in your veins. If you don't have the faith of Abraham in your heart, you're not a child of Abraham. And if you're not a child of Abraham, the point's going to be made in Galatians, you're not a Christian. Look at Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 8. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. What are all of these so-called physical promises God was making to Abraham about? Ultimately, the gospel. Was there a physical land? Yep. Was it really given? Yep. Was that really what it was all about? No, it was a picture of Christ winning the world. That's what it was a picture of. We'll keep going. He preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promises. Romans chapter 11 verses 17 through 20 tells us that God does not have two different peoples in history. He has only one people through all of history, Old Testament and New. Paul in Romans 11 analogizes God's one people to an olive tree, a cultivated olive tree. God takes care of this tree and makes sure it gets water and gets food and it's taken care of. And he talks to these Gentile uh, converts to Christianity. He says, some, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree, you were grafted in among them. This is how he describes New Testament Gentile Christians. He does not describe us as being a different tree. He describes us as being grafted into God's one olive tree. He said, we were grafted in among them and made a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. 
But he says, don't boast against the other branches. He says in verse 19, you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. In other words, uh, those who were part of God's covenant people as of the first century, who rejected Christ, who refused to believe in him, who persecuted the church and did not repent, they're described as being uh, branches who were being cut out of God's people. And then Gentile converts are being grafted in. But everything is by faith. Everybody is standing or falling by faith, Old Testament or new. Now, because God has only one people, and this is the way he works, that's why Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, blends circumcision and baptism back and forth. Something that scripture would never do if God has two different peoples with two different destinies based on two sets of promises, one physical and the other spiritual. You would never combine these two and mix them up in a single verse. But listen to Colossians 2, starting at verse 11. In him that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So the meaning of circumcision and the meaning of baptism are very similar, similar enough for Paul to blend them in this way in a single description of Christian conversion. So this is the backdrop of how God views our children, how he treats them, therefore how he wants us to view them and treat them. And so what are some of the implications that we would draw from this and some of the applications? There's a lot. I'm going to give you five this morning. Number one, God intends his children to be brought up in the faith not to the faith. God intends his children to be brought up in the faith, not to the faith. Remember, we already talked about what Christian parents do instinctively. Instinctively, Christian parents bring up their children in the faith. They teach them to pray. They teach them to confess their sins. They teach them to learn scripture and to obey scripture. They teach them to essentially live as Christians. That's bringing them up in the faith. That's what it is. In Ephesians 6, we have Paul addressing the children of the congregation. Like if Paul were here today, he would look out and say, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents where? In the Lord. Out of faith. Obey your parents. And then he applies to them... An Old Testament promise given originally to Israel and applied to the land of Canaan. That it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. That's verse 3. In the Old Testament it says that you, may, that you may live long on the land. Talking about the land of Canaan. So how is Paul taking this Old Testament verse given to Israel that pertained to the land of Canaan, bringing it forward 
applying it to New Testament children sitting in a congregation just like this and then applies it to the earth. It's because the land of Canaan was a real land really given, but it was a picture of the whole world being won by Christ. That's why. And then Paul goes on and tells fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The word for training is padea. It means everything that's involved in bringing a child up. It means teaching them, admonishing them, encouraging them, exhorting them, rebuking them. It includes discipline. It includes all of that, bringing them, bring them up in the padea and the admonition, the, the teaching and correction of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 makes it clear that the training, the padea of the Lord is only for God's children. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, whom the Lord, Lord loves, he chastens, padea, that's the same word. And scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, training, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not train? But if you were without training, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So we're to bring up the children he gives us in the training of the Lord. And the Lord's training is only for his children. So whose children are these? These are God's children formed in the womb and trusted to us to bring them up in the faith. The second point is this. A little child's faith does not look like adult faith, but it is no less genuine. A little child's faith does not look like adult faith, but it is no less genuine. You see... When you tell your little ones about Jesus and all the characters in the Bible and you tell them uh, what's going on in the Bible, they are going to believe you implicitly and without reservation. Indeed, the faith of a small child is the model that Jesus gives us for genuine, sincere faith. Matthew 18, verse 3. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, we think to be converted is for the little child to become like us. Jesus says it is exactly the opposite. It is for us to become like them. Now, he's not talking about maturity here. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, Paul says, um, when it comes to understanding, be mature, be like us, be sophisticated, be able to articulate theological propositions. But when, if you're talking about not understanding, but sincerity and genuineness of faith, then we're to be like them. Because that sophistication that we have in our understanding, it also brings the ability to be duplicitous and to play games. Something the little ones do not do. Their, their faith is guileless and genuine. 
So their, their faith is immature. They can't string together the propositions that we can. But when it comes to genuineness, their faith is as real as you can get. So it's a question of nurturing that faith up. A child's faith is immature, but it is real. When we expect children who have been brought up in the faith this way to then at a certain age come to a distinct self-conscious conversion experience, which essentially means in many cases that we're asking them to manufacture one. What are we telling them? We're telling them that faith is not enough. We say that salvation is by faith alone, but we're telling them now that faith is not alone. There has to be something else. Third point. A child brought up in the faith is in an entirely different situation than someone who is coming to the faith for the first time. A child brought up from day one in the faith is in an entirely different situation than someone coming to the faith for the first time. Someone coming to the faith for the first time, even if, let's let's take a 10-year-old child who's come up in an unbelieving family, they have not been brought up in the faith. Even at that age, they're in a different situation. They have to be converted from something, specifically from refusing to believe the Word of God and the gospel of Christ, from living in unrepentant sin, and from trusting in their own self-sufficiency and in their own righteousness. A child who was brought up in the faith does not need to be converted from any of those things because the child has been brought up believing the word of God, including the fact that they are a sinner who needs salvation in Christ and must look to him in faith, and they've been brought up confessing and repenting of their sins pretty much on a daily basis. So it's a different situation. The fourth point, Christian parents should focus on cultivating faith, not pushing a conversion experience. Christian parents should focus on cultivating faith not pushing a conversion experience. When we look at Jesus' concern for covenant children, we hear him say things like this, Matthew 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one little child like this, and the word is micros, from which we get micro. It means a really little young child. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, notice, to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That, so what is Jesus concerned with? He's not concerned about the genuineness of their faith. He's concerned that stumbling blocks not be placed in their way. And if we look at his parable of the sower of the seed, he's concerned that we dig rocks out of the soil so the soil is prepared so their roots can go deep. 
He's concerned that we get weeds and thorns and thistles out of the soil so the faith is not choked out. He's concerned with nurture. He's concerned with cultivation. He's concerned with feeding and watering and getting alien and hostile elements out. That's what Jesus is concerned about. He's not concerned with the genuineness of their faith. So the issue is not genuineness of faith. It's growth, nurture, cultivation, feeding, watering, fruit. The fifth point, Christian parents should pull their children toward God, grabbing them by their baptism, that is grabbing them by their objective covenant relationship with God and pulling them toward God. Here's the thing. You cannot strengthen a relationship by questioning whether it exists. You cannot strengthen a relationship by questioning whether it exists. Now, many Christian parents are afraid, uh, whether of pedo-baptism or teaching the reality of an objective covenantal relationship with God, an objective covenant union, they're afraid that that will set their children up for formalism. In other words, being a Christian in form only, only in the outside. Or what you could call nominalism, being a Christian in name only. Now, that, those are good things to be concerned with because God is big time concerned with those things in the Bible. But we need to ask the question, how does God in the Bible defeat formalism and nominalism? Does he do it by questioning the relationship? Or does he do it by affirming the relationship and then calling the person to live up with it? You see, we see God being concerned with this. Take Romans chapter 2, verse 28. You can see the concern here with formalism and nominalism. He is a Jew. He is, I'm sorry, he is not a Jew who was one outwardly. In other words, outwardly only. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh or only outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit. You see God's concern there with formalism and nominalism. Now notice you can take these words here that are dealing with being a Jew and circumcision And you can bring that straight over to being a Christian with baptism. Just substitute the words and see, does this this ring true? He is not a Christian who is one outwardly. Neither is baptism that which is outward in the flesh only. But he is a Christian who is one inwardly. And baptism is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. Is that true? That's absolutely true. So you see God's concern with formalism and nominalism, but how does God go about defeating them? Does he question whether you are his child? Or does he tell you that you are his child and then begin to pull you and call you to have the heart that goes along with that relationship? We can see this in Ephesians chapter 6. And verse 1, here's Paul dealing with nominalism and formalism. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Now that's classic formalism and nominalism. We're all, we're all in the grace of God, so let's just, let's just sin that grace may abound. That's formalism and nominalism for you. That's exactly what it does. Paul's answer is certainly not. He says, we who, how shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? What's he grabbing them by? Their baptism, that objective identity, that objective union and relationship with God. He's grabbing that handle. Now watch him. He's going to start to pull. We were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You see, there's the heart that we're supposed to have. He grabs the objective union based on the baptism by the sign, and he starts pulling toward God, toward the heart that's supposed to be there. Now think about it. Pretend that you've got a brother or a sister in Christ who is flaking out on their marriage. You're good friends with them. You start to see the signs that they are becoming married in name only. They're becoming married only on the outside in a formal way. The heart is missing. You've got a formalism problem. You've got a nominalism problem problem. They're a husband in name only. They're a wife in name only. So let me ask you, you want to go get your friend, right? You want to help them. So let me ask you, are you going to go to them and say, bro, I'm just not sure if you're really a a husband. I'm not sure if you're really married. Is that what you're going to say? Or are you going to go and say, dude, you're married because I was there. But you're not living like it. You're going to grab your buddy uh, by the marriage, right? By the objective union that's created by that wedding ceremony, that objective union, you're going to grab that handle and you're going to start pulling toward the heart that's supposed to go with that. That's what you're going to do. You see, we understand this when it comes to marriage. Even some years ago, Britney Spears, I don't know if you remember this, um, she and one of her uh, friends from high school, this guy she knew in high school, they were in Las Vegas having fun and so forth. And so for kicks, they went to one of the chapels and went through the wedding ceremony and they got married. And then afterwards, of course, it went all over the news and afterwards, they were saying, no, 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 we're not married. We, we, we've been kicking around since high school. We're just, we were joking. We weren't serious. The state of Nevada, Nevada of all places said, oh, no, you're married. See, there's an objective reality that's created there. So if you go to your friend and say, I just don't know if you're really married. If your friend is really flaking out, is really being a husband in name only, and then you go say, I don't, know if, I, I don't know if you're really married. That's going to make everything ten times worse. It's like pouring gas on the fire. He's going to go, yeah, yeah, I'm not really married. That's it. That's the ticket. I'm not really married. 
That's the last thing you're going to do. You're going to grab that handle and start pulling. It's funny because that's the same language that Jonathan Edwards used toward his children. He said, when my children start, you know, really uh, acting like non-Christians, I grab them by their baptism. That's what he said. That's the handle and I grab it. In other words, he's saying, you are a Christian. You are a child of God. Start showing some family resemblance to the head of the family. Let's have the heart that goes with this union. You know, he said, that's what I do with my children. And I think that's what we're supposed to do as Christian parents. That's a much more effective way. And that's God's own way of defeating formalism and nominalism. After all, think about it. If you have a husband is being, let's say, flaking out, he's being a presumptuous husband, he's presuming on the marriage union. A presumptuous husband is not one who is too sure he's married. It's one who doesn't care. A presumptuous Christian is not one who is too sure they're a Christian. It's a one who doesn't care. So you want to grab the handle and start pulling them toward God. So to sum up, as Christian parents, we want to view our children as God does. They are God's children whom he formed in the womb and entrusted to us. We want to treat them as God does and minister to them as God does. I would urge that we want to place upon them God's baptism, his mark of ownership. You see, when you look at it this way, our assumption that baptism is our personal testimony completely changes. It's not our sign. It's God's sign. It's not our testimony. It's his testimony. You see the difference? It's his sign and seal. We want to raise them in the faith, not to the faith. We want to teach them to pray, to believe, to trust, obey, confess our sins, receive forgiveness, worship with God's people, And love the church. And we want to focus on cultivating faith. Removing rocks and stones and thorns and thistles. And stumbling blocks from the ground. While feeding and watering. Not push a conversion experience on them. And when our children wobble and or wonder. As we all do at different points. We want to grab them by their objective relationship with God. Grab them by that baptism. We want to grab them by who God has made them. And we want to start pulling them toward God, toward the heart that they're supposed to have. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.